This is Cover to Cover, a podcast brought to you by the Santa Barbara Public Library. Welcome back, everyone. We're your hosts. I'm Norma Cervantes. And I'm Jace Turner. And we're delighted to welcome Patrick Lyra on the show to share their story. From their first childhood library experience to the present. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, really glad to be here today. My name is Patrick Lyra. That's a two-name first name, like Mary Beth. Um, I use they, them pronouns, and I'm the programs manager at Pacific Pride Foundation. We're so grateful to have you, Patrick Lyra. You know, in September, being library card sign-up month, we've been thinking at the library about our first library card experience. And my first library card experience uh, is kind of a special one, actually, that I'd like to share. I remember that I was in third grade, and we had just learned um, to write cursive, write in cursive. Every Friday morning, um, our class got to visit our school library. And of course, I remember our school librarian, Mr. Fermian. Um, and I can kind of, I can like picture our class perfectly um, sitting in this half circle. And before Mr. Fermian would launch into her story, our teacher would kind of put up her hands and, and in chorus, like crystal clear, you know, we would say, good morning, Mr. Fermian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you didn't have to laugh, but I just like, really. I really remember that and it was this thing. And then she was, you know, she would launch into her, her, her story. And, um, you know, she was an amazing librarian that, you know, really fed us readers books like they were pretzels. We just ate them. Mm -hmm. um, but one Saturday uh, in my third grade year, my mom took me down to the central library and uh, we rarely went downtown. And so it felt like a real field trip coming down to the big Santa Barbara central library. And I remember getting my first uh, public library card and the, the library staff member let me sign my library card. And since I had just learned to you know, write my name in cursive, of course I wrote it in cursive. And um, it's the card that I still have and use to this day. It made such an impression on me that when I worked at this library years later at the checkout desk, um, and I remember issuing library cards to kids um, and children and, you know, and their families, kind of, even though there might be like a super long line waiting for people to check out books, I would let, you know, that child like sign their own library card, no matter how old they were, just to kind of let them have that experience of ownership. Like this is their card. With it comes this privilege of being able to borrow books, right? That you borrow for, uh, you know, for as long as you kind of need them within the lending period, and then you bring them back and you get more books. So thinking about library cards and first library experiences and even first books that we kind of that you know that made an impression on us patrick lyra we're kind of hoping that maybe you would kind of start off by just talking a little bit about your first library experience mm -hmm. and maybe even a book that made an impression on you so i i can't remember a time i didn't have a library card which i am very happy to say i remember some sensory images of trying to sign it and how important that felt. Um, and I am thankful that, you know, my parents who are not perfect humans, but this whole library experience uh, of mine was really, truly perfect. They really made it seem serious. And I remember feeling when I got my library card for the first time, like my thoughts were actually legitimate and my questions 
were really legitimate. And I, um, you know, I taught preschool and kindergarten for 10 years before my current work. And I really think children's questions are usually um, not heard, mistreated, um, underappreciated by adults because of ageism and adultism. And so I remember feeling like, wow, this is mine. I remember looking at my parents and saying, now what? And they were like, well, you can take out this many books. And I took out as many as I could you know, stacks of picture books, because I think I was, must have been like six, seven or eight years old. There's a, I have a lot of favorite books and I actually ended up working at the library as a queer teen, which was a pivotal sort of life moment for me. But one of my earlier memories, I can remember picking out a picture book that was about, I can't remember the name of it, but I remember the images. It was about a family that had a pizzeria. And I just remember taking that book home and you know it was like lazy summer evening the sun is out way past your bedtime and you get to stay up a little later and i remember sitting on my dad's lap he would tell me to turn the page he would read to me and i remember looking and like discerning the words based on the pictures and just the, the empowerment of that i mean we can write off picture books and children's literature i think as well sometimes but it's so critical the the journey of self-ownership that kids can have through picking out a book, engaging with the book they chose, right? Not the one their older sibling chose, not the one their parent chose, although those can be nice experiences too. Um, so yeah, it was really, um, it, and I can remember distinctly realizing, oh, I can talk about books with people because I am not a sporty person. Nobody ever taught me the rules of sports ball. Um, despite being in gym, gym class and everyone being like, we're playing this game and no one tells you the rules because you're born with a boy body and everyone thinks you just know them in your DNA, which is hilarious and stupid. Um, <laughs> but I could talk to people about, I could talk to people about books. I could say, this is the book I picked out. I like this color. I like this cover. I like these words. It rhymes. And then I very quickly actually took the picture books I was taking out of the library. And I was, my sister will still say this, she's three years younger than me, but I taught her to read by reading to her um, with the books I got out. So, and she was not, she wasn't, she was a bit of a reluctant reader. She was a little more kinesthetic and she was a little more stubborn with my parents trying to get her to read, but she loved when I read to her, and Jace, I don't know if I've told you this or Norma, but I partially taught her to read by creating two sock puppets. One of them was named Mrs. Berry, and she was a librarian, and her daughter, I forget her daughter's name, but Mrs. Berry would read the books to my sister. Oh um, my God, I which love is That's the sweetest story. It's almost sweeter than Jace's story. I thought no one, I mean, I wouldn't say my library story because it's nowhere near Jace's, but I feel like this Oh, do share, Norma. Awesome. Do share. <laughs> <laughs> the so did you get your library card, Norma, at, at the Oxnard Public Library? I did. Yeah. Way back then. Yeah. But I'm more interested in the sock puppets. <laughs> this is very, which is legitimately a sweet thing, but also might have been the first time I ever did drag. So um, it's also simultaneously a very queer and very sweet story, you know? Um, but I didn't realize, I think, the impact of it until a few years ago. I'm 37, my sister's 34. And she said, you know, that was partially how I learned to like reading. Reading Buddies is something that we really promote here at the library. And we found that that's, it's true. It's so successful that other, you know, kind of siblings or friends or kids like to learn to read with their peers, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Or your siblings. And there's a lot of power in that. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And you were doing that even before it was something that the libraries were doing. So <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs>
Was there a librarian I, that you particularly remember, Patrick Lyra, that made an impression um, on you? Yeah, I can't, you know, it's funny with childhood memory, they tend to be more sensory for me. I remember there was an evening story time we would go to in that some those summer evenings, we would get take a bath, get in our pajamas, and then get in the car and not go to bed. We would go to the library for like a 7 p.m., but it felt like it was so late, like we were staying up so late. And I remember, I cannot remember her name, but I remember how it feels to hear her voice in my memory. Uh, the woman who would do songs and then picture books and the sort of feeling of being sleepy a little, you know, but at the library. And I think it might have even been like a pajama story time. Like it was literally billed as that, which is so smart because it's a great ritual for families to be like, let me get my kid ready for bed and always butt in bed, take them here, get them real worn out with some socializing and then come home and just plop them into bed. Especially when it's so light out so late in the summer, I remember struggling with sleeping. So whoever that lady was, and I don't remember her name. I mean, and I later came to know a couple of librarians working in the library as a teen. Um, and they've sort of become a composite of like the librarian archetype, I think. Yeah. You know, uh, compassionate and encouraging of questioning. The idea that librarians support people of all ages, finding what interests them and, you know, and, and, and also finding stories that validate their experiences and identities. That was certainly um, a powerful protective factor for me as a queer teen working in the library, um, finding stories like mine that they chose to buy in the 90s when it wasn't really common for libraries to be featuring, you know, much of anything. I mean, in the, you know, the art section yeah. with its nude photos for artists was also very helpful for me in figuring out my sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> I, where, where were you? Like, where was this, Patrick Lyra? Um, it was in, uh, it's in Onondaga County in central New York State. And then, and I went to that library on a whim. I had a rental car and I went and, and it had been beautifully updated, but it made me so sad because I kind of like, you know, it was okay because there was enough of the similar structure of the building that was the same where I could place myself in my memories. But, you know, it was like my special place was very different, but 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 more robust as well. So it was both, uh, it was like sad and also very sweet to see that it had grown and that it had professionalized and that they had a lot of internet access and they had all of the books they always had, but more of them. It was very exciting, but that is a hallowed place for me and my my memory, and you know, that's no small thing for a survivor of anti-LGBTQ family rejection to have. You know, I lost my home at age 17 when I came out. I had homelessness, wow. you know, threatened um, in my experiences with my family. So for me to have a place that feels like home, that I can freely visit in my memories, that isn't triggering, isn't complicated, was always validating you know, that's a powerful thing for an LGBTQ person to have. We often just have composites of places that feel like home. We don't often get to claim place as a central part of our identity always. Some of us do. I know some queers from the Bronx who are like fully the Bronx, right? But for me, growing up in rural suburban kind of America, I didn't always get to have that experience, but I can safely say that that library was and is one of my homes. And now I want to go back and visit it, like right now. <laughs> <laughs> so Patrick Lyra, um, you know, being that you are a licensed um, marriage and family therapist, mm -hmm. and you taught preschool for like 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. You yep. have some favorite picture books you would like to just kind of share that you think 
are really important for maybe our audience to know about that they can check out from our public library? Yes, I do. For this moment we're in right now, particularly with Black Lives Matter and thinking about this word intersectionality, which was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the 80s. Um, I love the picture book Amazing Grace by Mary Hoffman. It is the story of a young Black girl who is wants to audition to be Peter Pan. And on the one hand, the boy in her class, a white boy, says, you can't, you have to be a boy to audition for that. And on the other hand, a little white girl tells her, you have to be white to audition for that. And it's a very, and she ends up being, of course she's the best. And so of course she becomes Peter Pan. And of course those sweet kids realize they were misguided. So the book role models actually some very prescient things right now of calling in for those who need to be taught new things about their internalized bias. It shows what it's like to live at intersections of identity, to be black and a woman and a girl. And you can even extrapolate that to queerness, right? And how people are targeted. And I've talked about this with children and said, look, is it fair what Grace is experiencing? And kids are very quick to empathize with the protagonist and go, no, that's not fair. And I'll say, you know, and look at how she has two people telling her about two different parts of her, and she's one person with all these parts in one person, and how does that feel, right? And you can have the most nuanced conversations about racial justice, about sexism, about all of it with kids. And so I love, and like, that is a go-to for me. I absolutely adore it. Um, the last one I'll mention is just I Am Jazz is an amazing picture book that can help you talk about transgender identity with children because we now know gender identity forms young between ages three and five always has. And so we need to be able to talk about gender diversity and transgender identities with littles. And if anyone's listening and worried about that, you should know the kids are never worried. <laughs> it has to do, of course, with the grown up who's reading the picture book and how they're reading it. And if that grown up is worried, whether about racial justice, whether about trans stuff, then the kiddos listening tend to get worried because that's how little primates are wired. Anyway, those are some dear um, picture books to me that I would often use in my classroom. So I love it. And what brought you to Santa Barbara? I moved here 12 years ago on my birthday, June 21st, 2008. Um, I had visited the area. My ex-partner was here as a student at UCSB, and I visited the area thinking that for a while before meeting him, we met back east, and then he came to UCSB, and I was like, well, I'm going to the Bay Area because I'm a mod former modern dancer and I'm artsy and I'm definitely more foggy in my personal, my sort of vibe at times in Santa Barbara, <laughs> although this morning's fog was great. And so then I visited him out here and I realized just how gorgeous it was. Um, I had been living with winter for 20 plus years of my life. Um, there's a lot to love about winter. There's a lot that winter teaches you that people here don't learn, I think. But I needed a break and I found this preschool teaching job and, and then just made the transition. I felt pulled to California. It was shortly after, shortly after uh, gay marriage was legal here in California and shortly before it was taken away. <laughs> I literally moved here right before Proposition 8, which was its own trauma for me. Um, but I am a happy Californian now of 12 years and it's been a joy. I'm, I feel at home here in some ways and in other ways, uh, like I have homes everywhere. Like I said, place for me is never just, there's never just one place that I will ever be able to call home. You know, I started to, in the last couple of years, re-embrace my poetry writing practice. And I think it's fascinating how much of the ocean and living by the ocean has been infused into that poetry, which is a direct result of living here in Santa Barbara County and now in Ventura, basically the Central Coast. 
I was going to ask you actually about that. You know, you put together a manuscript of poems, you know, sent it off. Congratulations. Like, that's a huge accomplishment. You know, writing a Thank book you. of poems is a really, really big uh, deal. It's something that's very serious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, Patrick Lyra, how do you kind of balance those? How do you kind of find mm-hmm. the energy to, to, to create when you're constantly kind of putting so much out into our community and the people that you're serving? It's a really good question. I think I have had to become very clear um, that I my work is not crisis work. I am not someone who's on call. I am for my private practice clients. Obviously, that's part of that role. But, you know, Pacific Pride is a small LGBTQ center. It's the most robust between LA and SF, but it's a small city center, which means we don't, we're not here in the middle of the night when people need us. We we rely on the many other nonprofits in Santa Barbara. You've got a DV issue. Well, we're going to connect you with DVS who we've trained, right? So for me, I've had to, from minute one, and it's not easy, you know, setting boundaries in general is an ongoing process. Um, I need my weekends. I occasionally will work weekends for Pacific Pride and my role, but um, try not to if I can help it. I am not a social worker. I do not ascribe to the social work model. I am an MFT, you know, that means I work with people 50 minutes a week. It means that when I deliver programming, I empower people to empower themselves. And then they are on top of taking themselves through the next steps of the journey and circling back and reconnecting and all of that, right? But I have to really let go and learn how to somehow release the work. You know, I I think what helped me early on in my time at Pacific Pride and as a preschool teacher, you can't save everyone, you know? And that, I think, is a hard thing some Santa Barbarans struggle with, particularly in a lot of liberals. But quote-unquote liberals, but I had to say to myself and my team, we will not be able to find housing for every houseless queer person. We will not. There's just no way in the world we could. And I alone refuse to carry that weight. So that's been a journey for me uh, from being a preschool teacher that was heavily invested in my kids and their families to then doing the work of training as a therapist and realizing, you know, I need to have a boundary here or I am of use to no one. It's not, you know, people talk about self-care, but self-care is, as Audre Lorde says, revolutionary. It's an act of revolution. And for me, self-care, and in fact, one of my poems actually says, I don't even know what the line is, but it's basically like the weekends are the day that I, sh- I shut the door. I, I don't answer the door when everyone comes knocking, basically. Like I, you know, I have to have the right to say no and not be the only person who is necessarily required to show up for LGBTQ people, right? Like we have a community for a reason and that's hard to cultivate. So I just try to make routine a a thing for me. I try to make sure every Saturday is at home alone. I don't need a lot of people in my life. This COVID quarantine has been hard, but also fine for me. Like I, you know, I have a great time alone. I live alone. Uh, well, not so much alone now. I have a roommate who's a cat who's new. Tell, but... us, tell us more about your roommate, your new family member. <laughs> yeah, so um, no one should call me a pet parent. I think parent is a word that gets used for human beings. Um, I'm also an adoptive parent of two humans. That's why I feel strongly about it. But also I have a cat. So um, I uh, have adopted officially a new roommate and she is an eight month old tabby who's a little bit Siamese as well. And her name is three name, first name, sister Fiona Jane. Her DJ name is DJ Fiji. 
<laughs> she is a retired lesbian nun and she has decided to shack up with me and hang out. And yeah, so she's in my house now, which is the next poetry collection. I'm just like, oh my God, it's going to be so many different cat poems. Like it's just the depth. <laughs> For me, the cats and the way they look at you and the exchange of energy is very, and I grew up with dogs. I like dogs. Dog evangelists don't at me. Really don't, because I will put you in your place, uh, because I'm good with dogs, actually. But I don't want one in my home. They take up a lot of energy. My joke is they're all bottoms, and I don't need, I'm like, that's a lot for me to handle. But there's a, there is a richness to uh, having Sister Fiona Jane in my life, and kind of connecting, and the nice pets, and you know, and of course I'm a sucker, because she was the last in her litter. She was introverted and shy, and when, when families would visit to consider her for adoption, she wouldn't dance when they said dance. She would stay safe and keep herself safe under the bed, and that's something I respect immensely, and so I half crawled under the bed when I visited and just played there for an hour until she became a little more comfortable, and she's now unfolding beautifully. She, there, were, there were other animals in this wonderful um, Greyfoot cat rescue in Ojai. Um, Joan is just the best and really, really loving and, and just makes sure that these cats are understood in their unique personalities. And um, and because of preschool and being a therapist, I was ready to welcome a cat who was skittish and afraid at first, who felt overseen, but that's no longer the case. That cat is ready to converse at the drop of a hat and just was a full tiger mode this morning, just like running around the whole house. And that's a joy to see someone unfold and take up space because I've you know, I have been, though I am an extrovert, I've had to live in spaces and in relationships where I had to be very small and where I was silenced. And so for me, it's really lovely to welcome her personhood and her um, individuality and her catness, right? Her sort of real assertive independent side. And I just think there's gonna be a lot of <laughs> poetry coming out of it about what I'm learning from her and, and what she's learning from me. Um, I love it. Other than Sister Fiona Jane entertaining you during quarantine, what else have you, have you picked up anything? Have you done oh, yeah. something different? Well, poetry and Sister Fiona Jane, right? You know, as much as rest is really important, you know, and we have a lot of folks asserting the importance of rest during a quarantine, there's, a, there's another, there's a, a point where rest goes too far for me and where that can make my depression get worse, right? So I need a certain amount of doing and a certain amount of being. I don't really need the word rest. I, I feel like that's just as loaded as productivity as a word. And so for me, it's doing mode or being mode. And so, you know, doing mode was working on the poetry and, and trying to submit it, um, particularly to Copper Canyon Press and kind of submitted it on the anniversary of the Stonewall riots. And, you know, I, whether or not it gets published is, is is not it's beyond me it's just getting it done and feeling like it's done and um the processing around the poems so anyway poetry helped me through fiona jane is brand new about three weeks um so otherwise i have just i mean listen i went back to season one episode one of gray's anatomy and just <laughs> i i think shonda rhyme is shonda rhymes is incredible i think sandra O oh is incredible and then i also have found myself looking returning to um I like to read fiction. Like I am never going to be someone who picks up nonfiction. I'm sorry, y'all. I don't want to watch a documentary. Like again, that might be part of the boundary, Jace, around the work. Is like, I my daily life at Pacific Pride is a documentary. Yesterday, I fielded a call, by the way, about a local hate crime, um, where a young Latino gay man, a white woman in an SUV, called him a princess for carrying his bag a certain way, pulled over and punched him 
in downtown Santa Barbara. So that's like, that's my documentary that I deal with on the day to day. So I need to have not that during quarantine. So I have actually really enjoyed um, exploring the work of N.K. Jemison, um, who for me, um, is a brilliant black woman, speculative fiction writer, her book, The City We Became is quite, quite known right now in this moment, it's incredible. But I read her other trilogy, which I'm now forgetting, the Broken Earth trilogy, which was amazing. I'm a big fan of black women um, novelists in general, but particularly Octavia Butler and sci-fi kind of fantasy folks. And so I did those two and, and reading those trilogies and, you know, The City We Became, and now I'm diving into the wonderfully witchy uh, Discovery of Witches, All Souls trilogy. Like, I'm just going full throttle into like the witchiness with my cat and I'm apparently a crystal bitch too now and all that and I already <laughs> I, I already do tarot so I'm just like I I've been relying not on fantasy some people mis get it twisted with fantasy as a genre they think it's an escape and for me it's not it's particularly fantasy written by someone like N.K. Jemison or Octavia Butler it's it's a it's a lens onto our current world is what it is and and I don't know how to help people see that but it's not actually an escape but a a sort of um, rich sensory experience you can go on that then gives you sort of strength to get through this current moment, right? So like, you know, the city we became is ridiculous. Like the city of New York is essentially birthed and humans become avatars for the boroughs, but there's an inter intergalactic, you know, uh, thing happening and somehow it ends up feeling speaking to this moment we're in this paradigm shift we're in and so reading a lot of fantasy has helped me immensely too and then taking a lot of walks in Ventura um, audiobooks y'all at the library have an amazing um, if you have a library card you can get a lot of free audiobooks and so I've been making sure to weave those in on my um, sort of urban hikes I call them I'm trying to get my stamina up to go um, learn backpacking from one of my clinical mentors actually in the near future. So those have been some of the things that are getting me through on top of like Zoom happy hours and- um. <laughs> I love it. So just circling back around, what would you like to share that you haven't shared maybe about Pacific Pride or any takeaways? Well, I think I referenced earlier, you know, that I was a, I worked at my library as a queer teen. Um, and what I didn't share earlier is that I think I didn't have, I did not hurt myself, whether through self-harm or suicide because of working at the library. So for me, um, as I looked at our pr proud youth program this last year, I got to know Jace a little, got to know Lisa a little. And for me, I've always had this question, you know, Santa Barbara's progressive, but also it's not. We do have hate crimes here. We do have families that are horribly abusing their kids and, and behind closed doors, right? And then publicly behaving in ex whatever progressive way that... Uh, people might think is good enough. So we know with our youth group, which now meets twice a week, and used to meet and, and will post-COVID go back to meeting in our office partially, we know that not every kid can access the gagency, quote-unquote. Like coming to our center might be something that outs them. So for us, we were a little bit like, first of all, that's true. Second of all, we kept hearing from kids about representation, about stories, the power of story, about longing for stories that spoke to them. And once I got to know Lisa and Jace, and Lisa particularly, who has such a, a breadth of knowledge on young adult literature and queer young adult literature, it's really, I would say, an area she excels in, right? Tracking what's new and coming out down to the, like the tiniest details. I, I basically proposed to the library and, and the library was so wonderful in joining us on this partnership where we said, we're gonna do one of our youth groups a week. Well, it was one, one, 
month and hopefully it'll be once a week because we now meet twice a week but we always have a session we call our introvert session that focuses on journaling and drawing and it's the same as our regular youth group where we have a prompt we have room to process joys and challenges from the last week but our introvert session is not about speaking it's about drawing or journaling and then sharing back to the group if you want right so we said why don't we do that if we can at the library that session in the teen space to get kids connected to the library and probably to get some kids access in the group there who have permission to go to the library, which is a safe place for their families, and to maybe connect with our group, whether as allies, our, our LGBT programs are all open to people who are just, not just heterosexual, but aren't LGBTQ. Um, and that just has become the richest partnership. So I feel like that's really worth celebrating. I mean, down to you know, Lisa telling the transgender kids, oh, we can put on your library card the name that matches your identity. That's fine. We don't need you to jump through a billion hoops to do that. Um, to her reminding the kids, you know, what you take out on from the library, LGBT romance, young adult books, whatever, um, that's your business. We can't legally actually share that with your families. And this isn't about, for me, distrusting parents and families, but I will say that I think that, that we have an issue with children's rights and adolescent rights in this country. Um, and that developmentally speaking, the teenager is becoming their own person well before parents usually realize it. I say this as a parent with that lived experience, right? And so if we're not allowing kids some privacy, allowing them a chance to explore, we know that has consequence in higher rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide for LGBTQ or even just questioning youth. You know, the wild thing about all, all the LGBTQ inclusion stuff, is institutions that have LGBTQ inclusive programming like the library and us, when you have that programming, mental wellness improves for heterosexual cisgender boys and girls and people. So when everybody feels like they don't have, that they're safe, whether or not they are fitting in this or that box, everyone feels better, which to me is makes plain sense, right? So I think it's just amazing. We have, you know, our partnership with the library extended over the summer into this robust um, program that every month centered a different book. Um, and this month we're, we're centering the book Felix Ever After by Case and Calendar. So if you're listening and you wanna get that out and listen to it or read it, we highly recommend it. Case and Calendar is a queer non-binary black writer. Um, so we're weaving in conversations about racial justice, which we always do in our youth program, but we're doing it more so around that book and those themes. And I just, I think it's so powerful for a public institution like the library to create space online, but also when you are open in person. It's radical, it's revolutionary. It's what LGBTQ, by the way, taxpayers deserve um, as much as anyone else. And I think, you know, we talked uh, one of our groups too with the kids that having a library card again it's an empowerment of an individual's thoughts and feelings and it's also not just for lgbtq kids it's for our lgbtq kids who are undocumented or whose parents are undocumented to have access to to have something that is about like a, sign a signifier of documentation a library card that isn't restrictive that isn't requiring you to jump through a billion hoops that's allowing you to expand your mind and your heart right we know that information, when you, when you engage with story, things happen in the human brain, you know, empathy, 
quotient stuff kind of boosts in a lot of us, unless you're like a full-blown sociopath. And even then there can be good impacts, right? Um, and so anyway, I just am Pacific Pride. We can be more excited. I can be more excited to be partnering with the library in this way, partially because of course, there's always a little bit of selfishness in everything we all do. And, and you know, my little queer teen self would have wanted this. And my guiding principle is sort of that, like, what did I want? You know, the library was my safe place, but you know, the library would have done more, probably now the library I grew up at is doing more like this, stuff like this, you know? And so- that's, Yeah, that's one of the, one, one of the things that I, I think that's really kind of remarkable about what you're saying is that I think that over time, this is kind of a golden era for public libraries because we are kind of left and right eliminating barriers to access. Yes, yes, I, I yes. Perceptions of libraries kind of back in the olden days, if you will, are kind mm -hmm. of here's the librarian, the gatekeeper with all this information. You have to go through them, you know, mm -hmm. to get this, this information. And I think now with, you know, eliminating barriers like the public library, I um, mean, eliminating our overdue fees, um, it has, has had a huge impact on our users. Mm -hmm. and, um, also, uh, last year we did our student success initiative, which basically made it super easy for every child in the Santa Barbara Unified School District to get a library card. You know, yes. simply opting in when they're registering for school. Mm -hmm. and so, um, this is a really exciting time for public libraries and kind of public institutions kind of serving our communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's wonderful to have community partners that we get to kind of bring your specialty into the public library, whether it's virtually or in, or in our building and bring yeah. expertise to kind of share with our community. So we're so grateful for the work that you and your folks are doing, Patrick Lyra, Pacific Pride Foundation. And one of the questions that we like to ask people mm -hmm. is, um, and I know this, is, this will be an easy question for you. Um, what books are by your bedside? And, um, or what's in your Netflix kind of watching queue? What, what's exciting you right now in the way of reading? Mm. I know this is a bunch of books, but currently right this moment, what are you excited about? I am really loving the All Souls trilogy. The first book of Witches, A Discovery of Witches. The second book is, a sh I think it's A Shadow of Night. Um, basically this trilogy, which I think predates Twilight, is written by a historian, a woman, and it is sort of the complex story of a witch whose powers She's first of all been denying for a while. So there's like a coming out aspect around her empowerment, empowerment as a witch, but she's falling in love with a vampire. It sounds so trite, but it's very rich and complicated. And this witch is a scholar studying old manuscripts. And so there's like this history to it and this depth to it and this romanticism to it and this empowerment. I am not a fan of the Twilight trilogy for a lot of reasons. Um, I, I like how some readers have made it their own and I think that's amazing, but it's for me, it, pushes abstinence and um, a little bit of undermines women's agency, I think, that's my opinion. So this is not that, it's that it like gives you the sexy flavors of like, you know, vampire and human falling in love, but it's heady and it's smart and there's like a teensy time travel element to it. And honestly, it's been a, such a joy to like dive into um, every night a little bit at a time with a hard kombucha, that's my new jam ginger berry hard kombucha it's like how much crap i mean really i'm like a californian now for sure right yeah kombucha right. really patrick yeah. really i like i live two blocks from the beach i have my hard kombucha i've got my cat i live alone i have plants i have my record player it's like how much more you know so anyway that that's the one that i'm like the most excited about um and then i just am always i have to finish marge piercy's 
Detroit poetry collection. I'm a diehard fan of hers and um, that's been on my list for a while. But you know, with poetry books, I never read them all the way through at once. I sort of drop in and out. And so that's one I keep cracking open here and there as well. It's really lovely to just talk with you, Patrick Lyra. Um... I so much appreciate like how much you embody what you do. You're, you're talking mm. about doing and being, and somehow you kind of simultaneously do both of those at the same time. Oh, and, thank you. Um, it's a really kind of remarkable thing that is pretty, it's pretty rare. Honestly, it is. I'm a learner, so I don't know if you've ever done your, your five yes. or whatever. So I'm all about everything that you talk about. And I'm like, give me more. I want it all. <laughs> I think I've been a little teacher since I was young. And I think I'm beginning to explore my Celtic roots a little. And I think the Irish storyteller is in me. I think I've begun to claim that. Um, and thank you. I, I, I'm glad to know that it, it lands and it feels like it's interesting and of service because I certainly never want to just be kind of blowing hot air around. Um, well, you speak with such conviction and passion. It's kind of like in a bigger role as an advocate, you know, there could you could really affect so much change. And I know that you do on a day-to-day -day basis and I know that you only have so much to give and then you right. have to like be with yourself and I love that. But literally, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable and I, I do hope that you know, that in some way you find something bigger for you, you know? I hope so too. I occasionally am like, hmm, yeah, how do I level up to like the, I have thoughts on maybe I need to be shifting into writing more of a memoir a little and kind of doing that and seeing if that can get published and then, you know, book tours and things like that. I, I, I But I, I, I'm so about service that I it really wouldn't be about tooting my own horn. I just think it's how can my story assist others and and how can i tell the stories of others as well exactly. you know and and give them the attention they deserve and and orient you know followers that way back to other folks right? well and so. i love I, and i love kind of joan didion's quote you know um we tell ourselves stories in order to live you know yes. and that's such a powerful quote because you as you Whoa. say reading fiction kind of developed a sense of empathy you know, mm -hmm. that's exactly how we live our lives is by hearing the, you know, the stories of others. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we're so grateful that you've shared your story, some of your story today. Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's, it's a real honor kind of getting to hear another aspect of kind of your personality. Mm -hmm. um, and we understand too that sometimes opening up and talking about one's creative endeavors can be, can be a little bit, you know, challenging or make feel, people feel vulnerable. So we appreciate mm -hmm. you doing that and opening up with us today. Well, you make it feel really safe and I will come back anytime. It's a joy. Fantastic. So thanks for having me. This wraps up another episode of Cover to Cover. We want to thank Eric Mendez, our sound producer and editor, the Santa Barbara Public Library, and all of you for listening. Everyone's got a story to tell and we want to hear yours. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, shoot us an email at library admin at santabarbaraca.gov.